So I'm not sure if you've ever had a moment when you were trying to teach somebody something or some information on and it went horribly wrong. Uh, probably the most embarrassing moment for me must have been when I was teaching music to a set of year six pupils in a primary school. I'd set the lesson up, I'd got all the instruments out in the hall and I'd set them up in lots of li little groups uh, to start learning to create their own pieces of music. All was going well. And I decided I'd wander around all the groups and I'd listen to their music and see how they're getting on. Now, I've no idea how this happened, but the first group I wandered over to, as I bent down to listen to them, I passed wind super loudly. <laughs> in that one moment, all my hard work of teaching was thrown out of the window and I was left in a complete quandary. What do I do? Do I just carry on? Do I ignore it, pretend it didn't actually ever happen? Or do I need to own up and let them know and kind of talk it through? Well, rather foolishly, I decided that I'd just carry on as if it didn't happen. So, kids, tell me about your music. What have you been learning this morning? There before me are these faces that are just, like, struggling to contain their giggles. <laughs> it's not working, and, like, there's laughter oozing out of the side of their cheeks. So I try again. Come on, focus, children. What have you been learning about music? kind of realised that this wasn't very fair and I should come clean. So I apologise, I acknowledge what's happened and I move on. As soon as I turn my back to go to another group, these kids are up on their feet, charging across the whole hall, telling everybody what's happened. Laughter across the whole place, major embarrassment for me. All my teaching efforts thrown completely out of the window. So it's a bit of a tedious link. But we're looking today at the final part of Elijah's life where he passes on the baton to Elisha, someone that he's been training and he's been mentoring and he's been teaching for the best part of 10 years. Thankfully, unlike my teaching story, it goes far better to plan. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, where Elijah is sent to call Elisha. That's in 1 Kings 19. And then we're also going to look at the point where Elijah officially passes over the baton to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. So Gemma's going to come and read both those passages for us. So the first one, if you want to follow along, it will also be on the screen. We're in 1 Kings 19, and then we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 2. Thanks, Gemma. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Beth." But Elijah, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, 
Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and, and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel! And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho, who were watching, said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we your servants have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. And when they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Thanks, Gemma. Wow, loads in there. What a dramatic, incredible story. I'm going to try and unpack it a little bit together now. Ultimately, the first thing to say is that Elijah's legacy, all that we've been learning about in this series so far, is powerfully seen in Elisha's life. And there are four things that I want to draw out today about Elisha's pursuit of God 
that mirror everything we've learned about Elijah, but they're also four things that we can apply to our lives and our walk today. So the first thing to say is that Elijah, Elisha sorry, is committed in his pursuit of God. If we go back to his call, we find him plowing in the fields, and Elijah arrives. It's not an expected visit. There's no kind of greeting, no holy prophet high five or anything like that. We presume that they don't even know each other. And there's no evidence that Elisha is being forced to follow. Elijah just places this cloak over him, almost like as a token of friendship. But immediately, Elisha knows what it means. He's calling him into training, calling him into apprenticeship. And he doesn't think twice about committing immediately. He responds, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come with you. Again, Elijah's not forcing him. Elijah responds in verse 20 and says, go back. What have I done for you? But Elisha shows his utter commitment in choosing to burn up all his equipment, slaughter all his oxen, and provide an extravagant goodbye feast for all of his people. We should probably acknowledge at this point that that is a little bit weird. That's a little bit extreme. I can kind of imagine that if I came home from work one day and said to Susie, yeah, I've folded the charity that I work for. I've laid off all the staff and I've sold all the equipment on eBay. I can see Rosie there looking at me because she works with my team. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Susie would have something to say about it. Given the fact that I work for the Archbishop of York, I'm pretty sure he'd have something to say about it as well. But the point is, yeah, it's a little bit wacky, but what Elisha is doing is marking his utter commitment to this new way of life. He is choosing to pursue God with Elisha. Elisha's commitment is even more remarkable given that all that we've learned about Elijah so far. So we know that the story so far tells us that this is not a man that's very popular. This is not a man who enjoys any of life's great comforts. He hangs out in a dark, cold cave. He's told he's going to be murdered by the kings and the queens. He's provided food by ravens. Elisha knew full well that this cloak being put on his shoulders was not going to be easy. And yet, he goes for it with utter enthusiasm and commitment. And what was he stepping up to? Well, at the very end of that first passage, we learn that he stepped up to become Elisha's attendant or his servant. There's not much of a job description there, but he willingly does it. And then we hear nothing about him until that point, the second passage, where the baton is passed on to him. Now, it's estimated the time between those two chapters that we've heard this morning is 10 years. 10 years. So Elisha's call is really, really quick, and he goes for it. He doesn't give it a second thought. He commits, but his training and his mentoring is really long, but he remains committed throughout. I think it's a good lesson for us in an age where we often expect the fullness of things to happen straight away. God seems to delight in the time that it takes for something to be fully established. If we look at that point where the baton is passed, so the second passage that we heard, Elisha's characteristic of commitment is seen again, but with even more enthusiasm. So Elijah says to him three times, stay here, the Lord sent me to Bethel, and then onto Jericho, and then onto the Jordan. And three times Elisha responds, as surely as the Lord lives, 
and as you live, I will not leave you. It's kind of like in this journey that Elijah is testing Elisha's commitment, testing his resolve. He's trying to shake him off. But Elisha presses on his utter commitment to following his master and ultimately following God. There's quite a difference for me here to Elisha's pursuit of God and then the disciples' pursuit of Jesus. If you remember, three times Peter is asked if he knew Jesus. Three times he denies him, wavering in his commitment to Christ because of fear. Not so with Elisha. Similarly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be handed over to his enemies, he goes to pray. He takes his disciples with him and he says, stay here and keep watch. Three times Jesus comes back and they are all asleep. I just can't imagine this with Elisha. I can imagine it with me. If you're with me when I read a bedtime story to my kids, I never get through it and I get prodded in the side of the face by one of them to wake me up about halfway through. Not with Elisha though. His commitment. He's so passionate. I can almost hear him saying to Jesus, stay here Lord. No, 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 let me come with you. Let me come and pray with you, Jesus. If I can't pray with you, let me at least hide behind that tree there and just look at your back. Elisha is totally committed in his pursuit of God. So I wonder how committed you are in your pursuit of God. In the everyday, in the nitty-gritty, in the good times, the hard times, how committed are you in your pursuit? And I also wonder what this looks like for us as a G2 community. How committed are we to pursuing God together? Christian said earlier, this is the year of invitation. Will we sit on the edge? Will we watch, wait for others to invite? Or are we going to opt in together as a community? Elisha was totally committed in his pursuit of God. Second thing about Elijah is that he is servant-hearted. If we go back again to that call, we can actually infer that he is a very wealthy man. We're told that he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself is driving the 12th pair. Now, at the time, it would have been commonplace just to use two pairs of oxen, not 12. That's a sign of great family wealth. And yet, Elisha is really willing to lay his hand to the plow. It's not left to some family servant. He himself is willing to plow the ground, sow the seed to feed his people. But what's more remarkable for me is how then the next 10 years of his life are spent in utter commitment to Elijah and ultimately God. In 2 Kings chapter 3, so after the baton is passed from Elijah to Elisha, we find out how those 10 years were spent. Okay, so read it. Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. 10 years pouring water on Elijah's hands. Now, this is a Middle Eastern custom that's being referred to here. Basically, servants used to pour water over their master's hands before they were having a meal. So Elisha, this really wealthy man, He's chose to leave his people and to walk around as a common servant. Elijah's valet, basically. 
walk around with this bowl of water, pour it over Elijah's hands whenever he wants. Before he does anything exciting, any miracles, anything in the public eye, he spends 10 years as a humble servant. So I wonder how willing you are to serve others. As an employee or a boss or a student or a parent, what would it look, what would it look like if you're every day focused on serving others, putting the needs of others around you before yourself? I know this head teacher that Susie worked for for many years, and he made it his priority every morning. The first thing he did when he got in, he'd make everybody, every one of his staff, a cup of tea. Now, admittedly, it took Susie the best part of a year to tell him that she didn't like sugar in her tea, and that's why she always had a cup left over at the end of the day. But his servant heart, his ability to put others' needs first, pursuing the best for everyone else, was inspiring. Sometimes it is the small things like that that show the depths of our heart, the willingness to serve. Again, us as a church community, how willing are we to serve one another and the wider vision of G2? At the start of the year, Christian asked this question, what if, what if we were a church that came ready to serve, ready to give? And we also know that in G2, it's the hospitality that we so often struggle for volunteers with. Elisha was servant-hearted in his pursuit of God. Third thing to say is that Elisha was hungry for more of God. He'd grown up in a time in Israel where people were not living out God's will. They were not experiencing life in all its fullness. Elisha knew there was so much more and he was driven by a hunger for more of God. And this is seen most powerfully in the final conversation he has with Elijah before Elijah's taken away. So they're walking along. Elijah miraculously parts the Jordan, as you do. And he asks Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? Elisha could have asked for anything at this point. He could have asked for some new plowing equipment that he burned up. He could have asked for safety, exemption from trouble, for some honour. But no, he asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I wonder what you would have asked for if that was you. I probably should have asked for the ability not to pass wind in front of those that I'm teaching. Let's just understand the context of this a minute. What's Elisha really asking for? It's not a ministry twice as great as Elijah's. That would almost be a bit self-seeking. Now, what he's actually doing is using terms derived from inheritance law. Basically expressing his desire to carry on Elijah's ministry. So inheritance law at the time assigned that a double portion of a father's possession should be given to the firstborn son. So Elisha is viewing Elijah as like his father. He knows this is his destiny to carry on, but he's asking for something much more in order for him to do it. He's asking for the very power and presence of God. Elisha knew that no amount of experience, no knowledge or even acquaintance with Elijah 
could be a substitute for the power and presence of God in his life. If he was going to take over Elijah, if he was going to speak to some of these really dark and challenging places, then only the power and the presence of God would do. Even if he carried this cloak as an outward sign, that wasn't going to be enough. Inwardly, he wanted to know that he had the power and the presence of God for him to lead in his generation. He seemed to know something that Jesus said much later. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So do you know? Do you know that it's only the power and presence of God in your life that will make you effective for him? And if you do know that, how often are you asking for it? I think it's been really good at G2 recently that we've started pressing into pursuing the power and the presence of God, creating space and asking for God to come. It's only through that that we'll be an effective church. So how hungry are we? How hungry are we for more of God in our lives, but also here together as G2? Last year, Susie and I ran a hub with Miriam, table in our home. It was those that were still exploring the Christian faith, or they'd maybe expressed some interest, or they'd been on an alpha course, or they were really new to Christianity. We made it a priority from the outset to pursue the power and the presence of God. We knew that if we didn't do that, table would be a complete waste of time. So our house had undergone an extension at that point, and it was just completed before table began. So Susie and I, with the kids, we wrote down loads of Bible verses. We got them to draw pictures of what community was, and then we hid them under the floorboards, and then we hid them in the foundations, and we prayed. We got family and friends over to pray over the space, to anoint the space before table began, and we kept praying throughout. During table, we were totally amazed by what God did. Very quickly, people shared really deeply about their lives. People came to faith and got baptized. And people prayed and prophesied over others for the very first time. Now, I don't share this story because it had anything to do with us. I share this story because it had absolutely everything to do with the power and the presence of God. Yes, we actively pursued it, but it was the power and the presence of God that brought the transformation. So what if we pursued the power and the presence of God with the same passion as Elisha? Imagine that. What could we see happen here in G2, beyond? Elisha was hungry for more of God. Last thing to say about Elisha is that he was confident, confident in his new identity. If we look back to that point where he asks for a double portion, Elijah just says to him, keep watching. If you see me depart, then you'll have it. Elisha does this. He observes this great fire from heaven, these chariots. But there's nothing significant that is said that happens to him. But everything about his response tells us that he is now moving in and operating in the power and presence of God, living out his new identity. He follows his master's example immediately. He picks up the cloak. He parts the Jordan River. And with great boldness, he says, where now is the God of Elijah? 
these 50 prophets standing the other side of the Jordan witness it. They see that the Spirit of God is now on Elisha, and they come and bow down. They know that he's got this double portion. But there's a really big difference between the way the prophets respond and Elisha responds. They immediately look backwards to the days of Elijah, and they say, oh, Elisha, let's send out a search party. Maybe he's kind of gone up in the cloud somewhere and he's been dropped off on another mountain. I mean, it's just totally remarkable. They all knew that this was the day Elijah was going to go. But they looked backwards. Christian said a few weeks ago that fear looks backwards. This is what these prophets were doing. Not Elisha. He looked forwards. He knew he had this power and presence, this double blessing from God, and he was confidently going to walk in it. As Christians, we are given a new identity through Jesus. The forgiveness of sins, the promise of new life in its fullness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's the power and the presence of God to help us. Jesus himself said in John 14, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. So Elisha received the power and the presence of God, and he confidently walks in his new identity. That same power and a presence of God is available for us today. Through believing in Jesus, we're given a new identity, and we're told that we'll do even greater things than him. So I wonder, how confidently are you walking in your identity as a follower of Jesus? Do you know, do you ask for the power and the presence of God to help you with that every day? Elisha looked forward and was confident in his new identity. So as we sum up, as we think about the way we're going to respond, I want to tell you that Elisha's world is not very different to ours today. Look at the many idols that exist. Look at the worship to other gods, named and other named, unnamed. Look at the corruption that there is in the world that needs standing up against. Look at the amount of people who don't know the power and presence of God. We need to be a people in a church who are committed in our pursuit of God, who are servant-hearted in our example, and who are hungry for more of the power and the presence of God in our lives. Remember, apart from God, we can do nothing. It's only the power and the presence of God in our lives that helps us to confidently live out this new identity in Jesus. So Elisha asked for a double portion. That's the power and the presence of God to enable him to serve. Today, you're Elisha. What are you going to ask for?